an expert on prehistoric Polynesia, explores the first contact between islanders and European sailors. In some cases there was awe, in some cases there was fear, in some cases there was something that you might call greed. To experience the spirit of ancient Greece, try attending one of the traditional ceremonies at the monastery on Mount Athos. They didn't have any lights, only the light of the candles. And this created an experience which was very mystical, as if you were attending something that was sacred regardless of your personal beliefs. The pre-Christian mythology of Greece includes characters and drama that we can still relate to today. What the Greek gods are, really, are aspects of the human spirit and human life, the human mind. Understanding the seafaring Polynesians plus the delights of ancient and modern Greece are all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Guides from Greece share their favorite sites in the north of their country, including the charms of Thessaloniki. Plus, the comma queen, grammarian Mary Norris, divulges the love affairs she's developed with the Greek language and mythology. That's a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start on the other side of the world in the South Seas. It has its own legendary tales among all those tiny, far-flung islands that share a common identity as Polynesia. Christina Thompson has been examining oral histories, the records of Captain Cook, and the accomplishments of the Polynesian Voyaging Society, all to investigate what it can tell us about how we view the world today. She pieces together the navigation puzzle of sailors and settlers in her book, Sea People. Christina, welcome. Thanks for having me. So when we think of Polynesia, talk about how big it is and what it has in common culturally. So Polynesia is the area that is inside of this triangle formed by Hawaii in the north, New Zealand in the southwest, and Easter Island in the southeast. It's an area of about 10 million square miles, and it's smack in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it happens that all the people who live on the islands in this area, which is the islands that people have heard of like Tahiti or Samoa or maybe the Marquesas, they all share a common cultural heritage. They all speak related languages and they have a similar genetic makeup. Hmm. Now, Christina, you say 10 million square miles. And originally they were not populated by human beings at all. So somehow people had to get there and there was no communication. People didn't write. They didn't have metal tools. They didn't have navigational devices that I can imagine. Can you just kind of paint a picture to the best that we can? Were there caravans of canoes just going out into the unknown sea? Or how did these islands become populated originally? Well, I think one thing we don't know is how many canoes necessarily sailed together. But basically, the idea is that You know, some thousands of years ago, over in what sometimes people call the island nursery of Southeast Asia, in the islands around the Philippines and Indonesia and stuff, people developed an outrigger, which is this thing that sticks out from the side of the canoe to keep it balanced, to keep Mm -hmm. it from tipping over. And with the development of the outrigger, people started to be able to make some longer distance voyages. And the canoes that the Polynesians sailed in were like catamarans. They had two hulls. Okay. And they were stable. And they could carry a load of, you know, people and animals. Hmm. And so they started making longer and longer voyages, Some again, some thousands of years ago, from this western side of the Pacific out further and further and further into the mid-Pacific. But it must have been hit or miss because they didn't have maps. They didn't have radar. They didn't know where the islands were or if they were islands. Do you think they were just kind of going toward the sunset and hoping to hit land? 
Well, the sunrise, actually, but... <laughs> All right, the sunrise. <laughs> <They> were, <laughs> I would be, not be a very were, good navigator. Yeah. <laughs> they obviously looking for islands, and, and, you know, the islands are what they call intervisible. You can see one from the other in the Western Pacific. A lot of them are. There's a big leap when they get past that point, and they start to sail out to islands that you can't see. So they're probably exploring and looking for them. They really were amazing navigators. They weren't sailing blind. They understood how to go to one place and sail back from that place and to remember where that place was and things like that. They must have been exploring, but we don't really know how they found islands like the island of Hawaii, which is the islands of Hawaii are very isolated in the North Pacific. Right. How did they find them? Mm, who knows? Because we have no written history, people just build a, a raft that was kind of like one of those early outriggers, uh, imagining how they might have done it, and just without knowing if they did it, prove that they could have done it. A lot right. of those expeditions seem to be um, part of science. Right. So the the earliest one was, was at Tor Hardal's Contiki raft, which he, he allowed to drift basically from the coast of South America and ended up in the middle of the Pacific on the Tuamotos. And that was an, kind of an early experiment in this vein. But then in the 1970s in Hawaii, some people got together and decided to try and build a true replica vessel. So a copy of a, what they imagined an ancient Polynesian voyaging canoe would have been like. And they decided to try and sail it from Hawaii to Tahiti and back again. Hmm. And that was the beginning of what, what is really kind of an experimental voyaging movement in Hawaii. And what was that expedition called? The ship was called Hokulea. Hokulea has made an around-the-world voyage now, but that was in 2016, I guess. But between 1970 and 2016, they have made voyages absolutely everywhere. They sailed to Easter, to New Zealand, okay. all around the Pacific, to and Japan, and so on. And the point is to prove that it could be done. Yeah, to show the voyaging capacity of the Polynesians, basically, right. to show that non-instrumental navigation is really a thing and that people can go very long distances using mm. it, you know, that it's a real technique. Now, you, you said they sailed it. Is it drifting with the wind and the tides? Is it with a sail or is it paddling? They have a sail. Uh -huh. They have a steering paddle, but they sail. What were the very first contacts with European society like in the Polynesian world? Some of them were violent. Some of them were not. We don't have any idea what the Marquesans thought of Mendaña when he arrived. There's absolutely no record of it. And what I mean, there's the record of the Spanish, but we don't really know for sure what the Marquesans thought. Huh. Um, there was a little bit of that. I think in some cases there was awe. In some cases there was fear. In some cases there was something that you might call greed. <laughs> greed um, from is, the Westerners? No, on the part of the, I mean, this is, I mean, I think that a lot of islanders actually looked at these ships once they realized kind of what was going on and mm -hmm. who these were, people were. They actually wanted the ships. There are definitely stories of ambushes. Did they have some kind of uh, a religious context? Again, in the case of uh, the conquistadors from Spain, I mean, in their religion, I understand it was on this certain year, a man on a horse, you know, was going to come. And on that certain year, the man on the horse with the beard came, just like their scripture said. And they just figured, oh, this must be divine. And they laid down their weapons. And was there any that kind of dimension of that local cultural religion with the arrival of the first Europeans? Or was it the opposite? Um, the story of Cook's arrival in Hawaii is kind of like that story, that he arrived during a festival and he seemed to be the embodiment of the deity who was being celebrated in the festival because okay. it just happened that he arrived at that time. I think that that added to the confusion of Cook's experience. Cook was killed in Hawaii. That was where he died. And it was not long after this encounter in, during this festival period. And I think it added to sort of 
chaos and confusion that he had arrived during that period. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Thompson. Her book is Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. And we're talking about early explorers of the Pacific, both before the Europeans arrived and after. So Captain Cook arrived and they thought, oh, it's a festival and here comes God. And then things went sour and they killed him. Tell us a little more about that. So what happened is that Cook, he went up north to Alaska and then, or the Northwest Pacific, and then he came down. And when he came down, he was looking for a place to rest his crew. And he sort of hit the island of, of Maui. And then he went east. So he sailed all the way around the big island before he found a place to come to rest his crew. And that meant that he was sailing in his ship all the way slowly, because it's kind of against the wind, all the way around the big island for quite a while. And so when he arrived, the legend of Lono, the god that he sort of seemed to be representing, was that Lono passed around the island in the same way. He was represented as carrying a staff with white tapa cloth on it, which is sort of like the, the ship's mass and their sails. So it just a lot of things lined up kind of strangely. And then what happened was he they went through all this festi- these festivals and celebrations, and then Cook sailed away. And that should have been the end of it. He should have just sailed away, and that would be fine. But his mast broke just offshore, and he had to return. And when he returned, he wasn't supposed to return, you know, according to the legends. He wasn't supposed to come back until the next year. So people were confused by that. And then there was an altercation, and he died in the clash not long after he returned. That is so fascinating. Christina Thompson is the editor of the Harvard Review Online, and she recently wrote the book Sea People to explore the puzzle of Polynesia and its early explorers. Well, what are some of your favorite offbeat islands that we could think about visiting? Well, one of the places that people don't think of going to is the Marquesas. They are not beachy in the way of, you know, Bora Bora or some of the better-known Hawaiian islands. They are a little off the beaten track. You can fly there from Tahiti. It's not very far away. There are not a ton of places to stay, but the islands are just incredibly beautiful. They're very kind of uh, moody. They're craggy and tall and dark. Mm. There's no coral reef, so you don't have that turquoise lagoon. So it's a little more, I don't know, they're kind of more spectacular in a lot of ways, but less sort of obviously like beach holiday. You know what I mean? Right. That sounds like more of the dramatic dimension of exploring Polynesia. They this are, is... and, and the people are fantastic, so I would go there. <laughs> fantastic household. Uh, very welcoming, very friendly. They live in lots of little villages. You can see the way people live, their gardens, the kind of houses they live mm. in. They'll do some performances. They speak their own language. I'm looking at the cover of your book, Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. Beautiful island with a road going around the perimeter. And I'm also thinking about entire civilizations that are having to evacuate with the rising uh, sea levels. Are these islands uniformly threatened by a a rising sea level with climate change, or are some islands designed in a way where they won't have the problem and other islands will be submerged entirely? I think the people who are in trouble live on the atolls. There are lots of people in the Pacific who live on atolls, so Mm -hmm. coral rings, and they do not have any higher ground. You know, they can't retreat to higher ground, so they're the people who are... Their water supplies are at risk. When the ocean washes over them, they, their water is contaminated. And it's very, you know... Sounds tragic. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. It's bad for the people who live on the atolls and the Tuamotus and in a lot of Micronesia. A lot of times people would move back and forth between the high islands and the low islands. Mm-hmm. The low islands are sort of resource in a way. But when people are stuck living on them now with rising seas, they are at risk. 
Let's just close with one image. If you're, because you so clearly love the, you know, the South Pacific, the Polynesian cultures, where do you enjoy the indigenous magic of Polynesia more than any place else? Let's just finish with one little travel moment. Well, how about my husband's village? <laughs> Tell us about he it. He comes from uh, what's called Taitokoro, which is the north part of New Zealand. It's north of Auckland on that peninsula that goes up. Mm-hmm. And New Zealand is a Western society and so forth. But where he comes from, they live down a dirt road on a little inlet, and they get a lot of their food from the sea. Everyone in the village is related to everybody else. Mm. And it's just kind of an amazing place. And I think he's a little homesick for it. <laughs> Where does he live now? Boston. <laughs> Boston. That sounds a long way from a, a little cape on the north end of New Zealand. It is fascinating to think that when I asked you about Polynesia, you thought New Zealand. And of course, New Zealand is a part of the Polynesian Triangle. It is. Christina Thompson, thanks so much for giving us an insight into sea people and the puzzle of Polynesia. Take care. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Christina's book, Sea People, has won a number of prestigious awards. She and her Maori husband previously wrote a book about Polynesian society. It's called Come on Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All. Her website is christinathompson.net. Our next port of call is in northern Greece. And later, master grammarian Mary Norris shares how her love of Greek language opens up the ancient world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you're like me, when you fly to Greece, you start in Athens and then you work your way south along the Peloponnesian Peninsula or heading out to the islands. We're joined right now on Travel with Rick Steves by three Greek guides to convince us to head north. Anastasia Gaitanou is from Thessaloniki, the main city of northern Greece. Apostolos Duras shows visitors the modern side of Greece from his home base in Athens. And that's where tour guide Philippos Kanakaris lives. He also directs a small theater company. Today, they're here to guide us to the sites of northern Greece. Anastasia, you live in Thessaloniki, the region's greatest city. All the travelers seem to head south to Athens, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and the islands when they go to Greece. What are they missing in Thessaloniki? Oh, God, a lot. It is the second largest city of Greece, 1.3 million. It's exactly on the waterfront. It has a beautiful historical center. We do not have that traditional architecture that you find in the central part of Europe. It's completely different. But it is a city that has existed since the 4th century BC. So as you're walking through the modern-day center and then you turn around a corner, then suddenly there are Roman ruins in front of you, like the Palace of Emperor Galerius, or there is um, an early Christian church that is still standing, 7th century, and it's still in use. Or there are the walls of the city dated between the 12th and the 14th century. And then... Um, what civilization would that have been from the walls? What that would have been is the Byzantine or Byzantine. So you've got same. Byzantine, you've got Greek, you've got We've Roman. We've got Hellenistic, that's mm-hmm. where it starts, because Thessaloniki was founded by the successor of Alexander the Great, okay. Cassander, who married his sister, and her name was Thessaloniki. Ah. And he named the city after her. So there aren't any husbands like that anymore. And what's you. the waterfront like in Thessaloniki? It is enjoyable because um, the port is at the side mm-hmm. of the city, but in front of the historical center is the old promenade, the artificial promenade that was built in the end of the 19th century. It is not very wide, but uh, it is uh, a bit more than a mile long. And then the other end of that promenade is uh, a 15th century tower, which we call the White Tower. 
And it, it used to be part of uh, the fortification of the city, but it has become the landmark of the city, the city's museum. And after that is the new promenade, which is very wide with lots of parks and trees exactly next to the water. And it ends at the concert hall of the city. So that's the main place where people go to walk. Anastasia, you're obviously enthusiastic about your hometown. Apostolos, you're not from Thessaloniki. When you think about Thessaloniki, what, what comes to mind? How does it rival Athens? And, and what's the treats that you would enjoy in Thessaloniki? I think it has to do with the people. The people are really laid back. Uh-huh. And uh, when Thessaloniki comes to my mind, I just think of food. The food is wonderful up there in Thessaloniki. Oh, yeah. Really? So How would it be different from Athens? Because all my uh, travel life, I've been enjoying the food in Athens. I would say they have more special um, recipes and they, they combine very different ingredients. Uh-huh. I, I would say that in Athens it's more simplified, the food. And mm-hmm. I think it's more, if we can call it, complicated in the Saloniki. And of course, there I think they must have been uh, influenced by, by the Balkans in general. Because like, you're right close to the Balkans. That would be, uh, you know, uh, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Thrace. Th- that would definitely affect the cuisine, the local oh, okay. cuisine. Philippos, we're talking about northern Greece. Is that just the north end of the country on the map, or is there a... How do you define northern Greece? Yeah, it is one of the areas of Greece, because Greece, first of all, let's say that there's the Icelandic part, the islands, which is almost 14%, and there's 86% of the country, which is mainland. So we divide it into the Peloponnese, which is the southmost part of Uh the the country. And uh, then we go to the northern part, which encompasses some different administrative areas, which is Macedonia... Thrace, and sometimes we also include Epiros, the place where you find the city of Ioannina. Now, I have traveled enough in that part of the world to know that you cannot just draw a line and say Greeks here and Bulgarians there, or Turks here and Greeks here, and you're bordered by Bulgaria and Turkey and Albania mm-hmm. and Macedonia and southern former Yugoslavia. Is there a little bit of culture that spills over? Does it pick up the color of those other countries? Absolutely, and I would say that the northern part of Greece is the one that's more indicative of this blending, Uh because uh, constantly Greece has been a melting pot for the ancient times. But when we go to the period of... uh, We had the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman occupation. Let's not forget that Athens was reduced to a small town. That's right. Athens was down to just a few thousand people. Just the area around So there was a time when Thessaloniki was a grander city than... It never stopped being a very important city, a very important center. For a a large period during the Byzantine Empire, it was the second largest city after Istanbul. So this is a country where different cultures collide, they meet. Tell me the different cultures colliding. I want Uh, to just see The Bulgarians, the Greeks, the Turks, the Jewish community, because we had a substantial amount of Jewish people living there. They were unfortunately wiped out in the Second World War. Mm. But this whole blending of the people, the different cultures, the different flavors. And then in 1922, we have the the Greeks being expelled by Asia Minor. And a large number of these people, they go there. So 1922. Anastasia, let's talk about that. Is that when Turkey decided to get rid of its substantial Greek population? And Greece said, well, you Turks can go back to Turkey then and sort it out? Or what happened? You could call it like that, but that's a bit oversimplified. Uh It was the last Greek-Turkish war because we had been occupied by the Ottomans for a very long period of time. So there was a Greek revolution. So let's hold hold on here just so our our listeners understand. An Ottoman uh, invasion or, or conquest would be from Constantinople or Istanbul 
when it was the Ottoman Empire, it no, took it over parts conquered. of Istanbul was conquered by uh-huh. the Ottomans and almost simultaneously in the next like six to eight years, the rest was conquered as well. The rest of Greece. What belongs to Greece today, which oh, okay. used to be part of the Byzantine Empire. And we would think of that as... That tur- was the of, mid-15th century. And that would be like what we think of today as Turkish, the Turkish influence in, yes. in Greece in a simplistic yes. way. Yes. So there's a lot of Turkish culture, Turkish people, Turkish blood in Greece probably because of the Ottoman rule. Definitely. And there was a lot of Greeks on the Turkish mainland. And then after this war in the 1920s, what the, So what after that war, there was a treaty signed that defined the borders of the new countries. Mm-hmm. And according to that treaty, there had to be a forced exchange of population, meaning that whoever was Christian, because it did not have to do with nationality, ah, it, it had Christians to do and Muslims. with religion. Okay, you Christians go west and you Muslims go east. Well, you Christians, you can go wherever you want. So <laughs> most of them came to Greece right. and you Muslims go wherever you like. Most of them went to Turkey. Our guides to the north of Greece right now and travel with Rick Steves are Apostolos Doris, Filippos Kanakaris, and Anastasia Gaitanu, who lives in her hometown of Thessaloniki. I want to talk just for a minute, Apostolos, about the natural wonders of this place. When you're traveling in northern Greece, what's the terrain like? First of all, as we know, Greece is a mountainous country. Mm-hmm. So what is unique is you have like great national parks. Mm-hmm. You have lakes and rivers. You have gorges, ravines. Um, for example, you have the Vikos Gorge in Epirus. The Vikos Gorge. Which, what, what is that like? It is a beautiful gorge. It's about eight miles. Someone, this is V-I-K-O-S. Exactly which is like a beautiful gorge. Anyone can hike it. It is in the beautiful area of Zagori. Zagorohoria, which is like a group of villages. Z-A-G-O-R-I. It's, uh, it's, it brags that it's the world's deepest canyon. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly. like a four-hour hike. Exactly. That sounds like a wonderful day. And then the Zagori area, it's famous for its villages also. Yeah, it's, it's a group of villages, like 46 villages. We have like the eastern Zagori, the central Zagori, and the western Zagori. And there's a great variety of villages. There are like 46 with beautiful, uh, wonderful food hmm. and a unique architecture of uh, stone houses. And, and how generic. far would this be away from Thessaloniki? Let's say you're going to base in Thessaloniki and you want to go to this gorge and you want to go to the Zagori villages. It would take about two and a half hours. Two and a half hours by car. By car. One of the most famous sites in the north is Mount Athos, the monastery at Mount Athos. And... Uh, I know Anastasia has not been there because if you did, you'd have to dress up like a man and be yeah. dishonest. Who's been to Mount Athos? I have. Philippos, what is that like? That is very correct what you said. No women are allowed, sadly, because they miss out on an on a opportunity to visit a world which goes back in time when you enter. It's a series of monasteries up there. It's, let's say, our own version of, of the Vatican, meaning that it's like a country within a country, like it is in Italy. Greek Orthodox? Greek Orthodox, very traditional in their ways. No women. No women allowed. No women donkeys? Uh, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't uh, investigated. I've heard, heard they're even careful about that. It's <laughs> just they, a man's they, world. It a, is a, a male man's world. world. And if you want to cross over there, because it's in, the, in a part of the northern part of Greece, which is called Halkidiki, uh-huh. And if you want to go there, you go to a place called Uranupoli, uh-huh. and that's where you have a port of entrance, so to speak. Right. And they, they do check. It's like a passport control to go there. 
they allow you to stay in the monasteries for two to three nights. A tourist can do this. Of course, as long as they're male. A male tourist and yeah, with, yeah, a, yeah. with a serious interest in respecting this culture, I would assume. Absolutely. And you approach them, you contact them, and you speak to them, and they will allow you to stay for two to three nights. And sometimes you can extend your stay, but just go to a different What monastery. would the experience be if I stayed one day in Mount Athos? It's amazing because if you want to have the full experience, because they will never force you to do things, but it would be amazing to follow the whole itinerary that they follow and the whole diet. They have specific times where they have their meals. Mm-hmm. If you want, you can wake up at about 3 a.m. So you can have this uh, visiting monastic experience if Absolutely. you like. Absolutely. And you can go and attend the Mass, uh-huh. the early prayer, which is at 4 a.m. Uh-huh. And when I went, I had a very surreal experience because I was staying in, the, in one of these rooms which looked like small cells, you know. And I came out getting ready to go to the service and I saw these monks passing by because the, the time was such and I woke up in a very strange feeling, let's say. I saw them walking and they have these long garments that they wear and I felt that they were just floating in the air and it gave me an amazing experience going. I went inside the monastery, the church, and I attended the mass and what was really moving was that they didn't have any lights, only the light of the candles and this created an experience which was a very mystical uh, experience as if you were attending something that was sacred regardless of your personal beliefs because it's not about having a, just a religious experience it's about experiencing something different something that's not in the realm of how we understand life you have just touched something very important that is regardless of if you believe in god or you go to organized religion or you just raise your hands to the sun or whatever you can find yourself in places in Europe where you you feel that spirituality. Iona in Scotland, Assisi in, in Italy, Mount Athos in Greece. Absolutely. And I highly recommend that to the people I know. Sadly, no women are allowed. But I always recommend that to friends of mine, whether they're Greeks or not, that they have to have this experience. It has nothing to do with their personal religious beliefs. It is an opportunity to connect yourself with something that you can experience as divine. It doesn't have a name. It only has an energy. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anastasia Gaitanu, Apostolus Doras, and Philippos Kanakaris. That was, um, makes me feel a little bit sorry for the women who could not go to that place, but there's lots of other opportunities. Apostolus, uh, women can certainly enjoy Mount Olympus, and that's been a mountain that has been a uh, important spot in Greek culture since long before there was any Greek Orthodox Church. What is Mount Olympus to the Greek people? I think Mount Olympus is a symbol. It's uh, the highest peak uh, of Greece and it's a beautiful place to go for hiking, climbing and enjoy nature and of course it is connected to the Greek gods, to our mythology, to our culture. So this was uh, in Greek mythology the home of... Of, of the Greek gods. And With this Zeus. Where, exactly. This is oh. where they used to hang out. And we learned since we were kids at school about when you, uh, Mount When you Olympus. look at it, can you see why it must have been considered a special place 2,500 years ago? When you look at it, how, how would it cause people so long ago to think it's special? Uh, because it, was, it is a wonder of nature, because of its altitude and its height. It, it, it would dominate the whole landscape, so people would be scared and also admire at the same time. Philippos, when you look at Mount Olympus, how do you see it? I'll tell you what my first experience was. When I was traveling for the first time towards the north, I was quite young, 
and I remember approaching with a, with a car. The weather was good, and I remember seeing the clouds up on Mount Olympus. Uh-huh. And I could see a bit above the clouds because they, were, they had descended the clouds, and I could see the, the mountain continue above them. And I remembered all the myths that we had at school with, with Zeus looking above everyone with his thunders, and all the gods eating, you know, ambrosia and drinking the nectar and all those things. So this feeling of seeing the cloud basically fitted like a ring on the mountain. Immediately my mind went to all the stories I've heard from kindergarten. Because I had a teacher that would teach us the myths from kindergarten. We didn't know how to read, but we knew everything about Hercules. We knew everything about Zeus. So the first thing I see, I must be 10 or 11 when I do this trip. And I have this surreal experience. For the, my parents were scared because for, for a brief moment, I st- remained silent. I was Dennis the Menace when I was a kid. So for them, a moment of silence was... Quite remarkable. You yeah. were impacted by that. Yes. In that ring of clouds, it almost made it look like there was Earth and there was the realm of the gods. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anastasia, Apostolos, and Philippos about the many dimensions of culture and history and sightseeing in northern Greece and all of these different cultures and, and centuries upon centuries of heritage. Anastasia, what, what is a, a slice of the story of, of Greek history that we've not talked about in this discussion so far? Well, there is so much, but if one would have limited time, one place to which one definitely should go is Vergina. That's the name, the today's name, of the village that is to the southwest of Thessaloniki, very close to Mount Olympus. But that used to be the place where the first capital of the ancient Macedonian kingdom used to be. And there is also the royal cemetery of ancient times where all the Macedonian kings had to be buried. So in the 70s, late 70s, during the excavations, the unlooted tomb of the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II, was found and of his son, Alexander the Fourth. Wow, and the it, unlooted tomb. It's, I've yes. not heard somebody say that, but that makes a big difference. If you find a yes. looted tomb, you find some bare walls and, and maybe a few carvings. An unlooted tomb, you find all That's the treasures. That's a rarity. Yeah. And it is very important also because Philip II was, well, he was the most important king for Macedonia, even more, more important than Alexander the Great, right. because without him, there wouldn't be any Alexander the Great. Right. And that was even acknowledged in ancient times. But he was not just a king who changed history, he made history. And a lot of what we are today as Greeks, we owe to him. Philip the Second. Apart from all of that, that tomb is, so far at least, the second richest unlooted tomb of antiquity that has been found after the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt. And where do we They're, find the artifacts and the treasures from And the tomb? artifacts, well, they have done an amazing job because... They build a building above the tombs to protect them, but in such a way that everything is exhibited in front of the tombs. It is quite dark in there, not so dark that you can't see, but it's not broad daylight. So it's quite dark to remind people that this is a mausoleum. It's not a museum. It's a place where the world touches the underworld. There's so much. Now, as I opened up this uh, interview, I, I said it was kind of for me as well as our listeners. And you've got me inspired. I've got to get over oh, yeah. to Greece again and to head north for a change. And may you just say how you could end your day. You return from those tombs where you see all that gold and all that silver. And you go to the Saloniki and you, you just 
walk there at the promenade and then you sit somewhere, you have a coffee or you have another drink and you just see Mount Olympus opposite to you there at the sunset. We have amazing sunsets. From Thessaloniki you can see Mount Olympus? Yes, you can. It's very close. And you can be thinking about all the tourist crowds in Athens. And you can try also one of our delicacies, an amazing sweet, which is filler dough and syrup and cream. We call it the triangle, but you can't find it anywhere else. It tastes so good. Trigono, triangle. Anastasia, Apostolos, Philippos, Ephedesto. Parakalo. Kimis, Freistume. Our hearts remain in Greece a little longer as next, Mary Norris tells us of her love affair with the Greek language, mythology, and all things Greek. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από τους Δελφούς και ταξιδεύω με τον Rick Steves. That was Greek. I'm Penny from Delphi, Greece, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από τους Δελφούς και ταξιδεύω με τον Rick Steves. Perhaps the goddess Athena had something to do with it. In her 30s, early into her long tenure as a copy editor at the New Yorker magazine, Mary Norris's boss showed her the delight you can find in learning to read and speak Greek. For one thing, it's like a ticket that lets you access both the ancient and the modern Greek world. And it adds a whole new level to your travels in Greece. You could call Mary an alphabetophile as she learns the root meanings of words we use in everyday English and listens to what the characters of Greek mythology have to say to us today. Mary describes what fuels her passion for all things Greek in her book, Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen. Mary, thanks for being here. It's wonderful to be with you, Rick. So you wrote, and I'm just quoting here from your book. I, I want to read this, this couple of sentences. It's, it's an amazing entry. Greek has been my salvation. Whenever I've been away from Greek for a while and I come back to it, it revives something in me. It gives me an erotic thrill, as if every verb and noun had some visceral connection to what it stands for. Wow, I think I'll have a little what you're having. That is quite a statement, Mary. <laughs> so what is it about uh, Greek that, that gives you an erotic thrill? Like every little comma, every little accent has something exciting behind it. Well, it is a very sexy language. I'm not sure quite how to account for it. But you know, the overtones of Greek in the English language give you a little bit of an idea. Every word that has come from Greek to English has this aura around it that is hard to explain. Uh, the word panorama comes from the Greek. Pan is all, and orama means vision. So a panorama is a vision all around. And there are just countless words that if you know where they came from and you have an idea of their Greek roots, like the name Pandora, uh-huh. you know, of Pandora of the box. Her name means all gifts. Okay, here's a word, monotony. <laughs> I hope you're not addressing my tones, I'm my ta- voice. <laughs> I'm talking about Greek to me, but what does that mean, monotony? If you look monotony right is, words. mono is one or single, alone, and tony, tono, is from the, it means tone, so just as it does one in tone, English. So monotone, monotony. Monotony t- is single tone. It's kind of onomatopoetic. Monotony. So it is kind of confusing because we think of, of Greek in a way as ancient, but it's modern also, of course. How is Greek the same or different from ancient Greek, today's Greek and ancient Greek? Well, modern Greek looks 
a lot like ancient Greek. They've dropped a lot of the accents over the words, and it's pronounced differently. Although I have to say they don't really know how the ancient Greek was pronounced. But a lot of the vowels have, and the diphthongs or clusters have slid into the single sound of E. And hmm. the meanings of the words have all shifted. The spelling still has its history in it, just the way so many words in English do. As a, a Grecophile, is that what you would call somebody like you who, who just loves everything That's about That's a good word for it, or a Philhellene. A Philhellene, I like that. So there's, are you more excited about contemporary Greek or, or ancient Greek? Well, I love them both. If I had to choose, I'd go with modern Greek because it's the Greeks now who are still mm -hmm. alive and who have feelings. And yeah, <laughs> The ancient Greek has an amazing treasure of literature that is written in it, though, so you have to give them credit. And, and speaking of giving credit, a lot of colleges are no longer even teaching ancient, the classics anymore. What, what's the trajectory of uh, studying ancient Greece and the classics in higher education in our culture? Well, you have to be pretty dogged to insist on studying modern or ancient Greek, I think. It started when I was in about, just when I was in high school, the requirement for Latin started to not exist anymore. Nobody cared right. anymore about Latin, much less Greek. But I, t I took a class way, way back when I was in university called Ancient Greek and Latin Roots in Modern Usage. And it was a Ooh, great class. Ooh, that sounds wonderful. It was really good. And I, I never learned a language, but I sure benefited from knowing, uh, getting a, a, an appreciation of how deeply rooted our modern language is in Ancient Greek and Latin. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Mary Norris. She describes her passionate love affair with Greek language and culture in her book. It's called Greek to Me. Mary's also written Between You and Me, in which she provides irreverent tales of pencils and punctuation from her career as a well-known copy editor at The New Yorker. Her website is commaqueen.net. So, Mary, the Greek language is one thing, but there's also just the whole study of of Greek classics, and that would be tied intimately in with Greek mythology. How is Greek mythology a life skill worth having? How, how has that been actually of practical value in your life? Well, what the Greek gods are, really, are aspects of the human spirit and the human, and human life, the human mind. For instance, um, Dionysus. If you have an extra large dose of Dionysus, you'll get drunk all the time. If you feel... Um, something like Zeus, maybe you'll have lots of affairs. My favorite is Athena, the goddess of wisdom, um, because she offered a model of feminine strength and wisdom and learning and mm. also was a friend to humanity. You know, she was the guide for Odysseus. So she was a kind of counselor or mentor. And you know, it really helps people to have somebody to, to get advice from. So if you find someone with um, bright eyes who has some ideas for you <laughs> or some suggestions for how you might get something done, you know, listen. Now, you wrote quite emotionally or, or impactfully about uh, how taking a course in Greek mythology actually helped you deal with a, a family tragedy. Yes, when I was growing up, when I was actually before I was growing up, when I was just a baby, I had a, a brother who was two years older than I, and he tragically died. Um, and my mother, of course, was grief stricken, and my parents had another baby right away. And 
I felt guilty about my brother's death growing up and also resentful of the new brother. <laughs> and it was not until I was in college and I studied mythology. I had a course with a wonderful classicist named Froma Zeitlin. And one lecture she spent on the um, mysteries of Eleusina, the Eleusinian mysteries. And that is the story of Demeter, the goddess of grain and cereal, and her daughter Persephone. And Persephone gets raped by Hades and taken to the underworld. And her mother is heartbroken and won't let anything grow. So humanity is on the verge of famine before Zeus makes Hades give the girl up again. So Hades gives the girl up, but he makes her take a bite of the seeds of a pomegranate first. And for that reason, she must return to the underworld every year. And that story explains the round of the seasons, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter, and Persephone, or spring, comes back every year. And we need that reassurance. In my case, personally, you know, I went and traveled to Elefsina, as the modern city of El Eleusis is called, and there was not all that much there to look at, but it gave me the sense that what I had missed as a child was this affection between a mother and a daughter. Hmm. And I finally came to terms with my mother's grief and hmm. that it was not my fault, you know, and I forgave my mother and got to be better friends with my little brother and just felt better for that experience. So Greek myths can be uh, part of interwoven into the, the, the Greek upbringing, the Greek sensibilities, the, the Greek way of dealing with life's challenges. I suppose in ancient times that was a practical function of all of these myths. Well, the tragedies were like ancient therapy. You know, that's right. when... People didn't have uh, shrinks to go to, but they all went together to the theaters and to watch Oedipus go through what he goes through or Antigone. Their problems were so much worse than anything that happens to us that it makes you feel better. It just does. And you write in your book in a fascinating way how you can gain insights into contemporary Greek culture by looking at the myths. For example, sweeping, the, the action of taking a broom and sweeping in ancient myths was almost like foreplay leading up to some sort of exciting adventure with somebody sexually. And <laughs> Did I write that? Goodness. Yeah, and, and, and to, well, maybe I'm drawing a conclusion, but you, you drew a, a connection with today how brooms are a big deal in Greek culture. And I just, I've been to Greece a lot and I've never noticed that. Well, you watch next time. I think it's because they have so many ruins and the ruins create so much dust that the um, Greeks are always sweeping, whether it's a handmade broom or something plastic that they got at the supermarket. Speaking of supermarkets, they have a whole aisle dedicated to brooms. The word is scopa, like scoop. And you wrote how a rainstorm is just a good opportunity to really get out and clean the sidewalks. Well, I did have a Greek landlady who was very, very, very neat and kept every speck of dirt off her sidewalk. And she, when it rained, she would actually use that rain to scrub them extra well. But the fact that that was recognized as a Greek trait, even woven into myths that were concocted 2,500 years ago, that's quite astounding. That's quite an insight into that culture. <laughs> well, you remember Ajax and Hercules? I guess they say Heracles, actually, in Greek. 
the heroes were always cleaning up. You know, maybe in true. war ha, they were cleaning up. You know, cleaning up by killing. Right. Yeah. But certainly, all half of those labors of Heracles were about, you know, cleaning the Augean stables and getting rid of messes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Norris. Her book is Greek to Me: Adventures of the Comma Queen. Mary, you've traveled around Greece a lot, and it shows in this book. I'd love to know, just from a traveler's point of view, what are some of your favorite ancient sites, and and how has understanding the myths been a good sort of uh, prep so you get the most out of your visits? Well, um, certainly Athens and the Acropolis and all the temples up there, including the Parthenon, the Temple to Athena, are very inspiring, although you kind of have to imagine what it looked like in ancient days. The New Acropolis Museum really helps with that. It has everything on levels so that you can climb the stairs and look at the sculpture at the level it would have been on on the Parthenon itself. And they have dotted lines for where the pieces that were taken by Lord Elgin to England should be. So that's that's very interesting. And then everyone has to go to the islands my favorite was probably Cyprus, which actually is not part of Greece, but the Greek culture there is very strong. And it was um, devoted to Aphrodite. That's where they say Aphrodite was born. And the place is just gorgeous. It's just so beautiful and beautifully kept. It's well-groomed. And I, I know there's still a war going on there. And when you get there, you can see why they're fighting over it. You know, of course, it's in a very strategic position, but it's also a beautiful, beautiful place. Hmm. Now, have you traveled on the Peloponnesian Peninsula a lot? What were your favorite I parts have. of the Peloponnese? I love the Peloponnese. Everywhere you go on the Peloponnese, you see sites that are associated with Heracles. You see places that are mentioned, of course, in the Trojan War, both the Iliad and the Odyssey, the home of Agamemnon in Mycenae, and Pylos, Sandy Pylos, or Pylos, where Nestor was from. My favorite place is always the most recent place I visited, and in this case, that's Cardamili, which is in the Mani, the central peninsula of the three that hang down from the Peloponnese. So that's way on the far south, as far as you can go on the... On the yes, the it is uh, the, as far south of the um, Greek mainland, yes. Mm-hmm. The nearest big town is Kalamata, where the olives come from. Mm-hmm. But Cardamile, just, it feels, you can almost, you can feel the heritage of classical Greece in a place like Cardamile, I think. Yes. Can, you've been there then? Yes. Oh, oh yes. And uh, it's just, and it's a wonderful jumping off point for the, the Mani. And the Mani is depopulated today, but it just, you go to the very end of the road in Mani, and it's, uh, I think, in, according to mythology, that was the entrance to the underworld. Yes, yes, way down there at the end. And that, that of course, is such a treacherous road to drive on, but so rewarding, so beautiful. So if you think about your passion for Greek culture, you know the intimate... Uh, ins and outs of the language. You have incorporated that into your travels. You've written about it. How would you say your love of all things Greece has enriched your your life? Well, when I first started studying it back in the 80s, I was in my 30s, and I was was kind of lonely. And actually, (laughs) Greek, both modern Greek and ancient Greek, gave me a social life. I know it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But when I was studying ancient Greek, I got involved in 
productions of plays, the Greek tragedies, in the original language. And I loved doing that, and I made a lot of friends doing that, you know, the way when you're in a play, you become part of a family in a way. And then traveling in Greece itself, I've found many people who are just really open. And in my Greek is not very good. I hate to admit it, but I have to. And I make a lot of mistakes, and they're so generous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they correct me when I'm wrong, and they laugh at my mistakes. <laughs> and they teach me. Considering all the potential fun you could have with Greeks in your travels and uh, how omnipresent the tavernas are, what's your tip for an American that, that really is not fluent in Greek to be able to connect with the people and have fun in a taverna? Well, I don't think you can go wrong in a taverna. I would say that you should try to eat the way Greeks eat, which is family style. Start with an ouzo with a little ice and some water and a little feta cheese and some olives and have some of the dips, um, tarmosalata, which is fish egg roe. And I know some people are scared of it, but it's just delicious. And tzatziki, which is the yogurt dill cucumber dip that's so good. And then move on to any of the bigger dishes. Um, a Greek salad, koriatiki salata, is a wonderful thing with feta cheese and olives. They do great things with chicken. I'm not a big fan of lamb, but the Greeks also do well with lamb. And the seafood is very fresh. Everything is flavored with just four things, really. Olive oil, lemon, garlic, and oregano. And those four things are the essence of Greek cooking to me. Oh, and you have that surrounded by the wonders of Greece, beautiful Greek salad, about six or eight little plates, meze, fresh seafood right right out of the sea, one too many ouzos. And some local wine. And the clatter of the backgammon boards all around you, and all of a sudden, (laughs) dancing breaks out, and you have a memory that you will never forget. And all the sea glittering. And when you know Greek culture and enjoy Greek culture like you, I would think locals would be impressed, almost stunned by your knowledge. Locals always appreciate it when um, a traveler, a barbarian, as the, the Greeks call anyone who doesn't speak Greek, has gone to the trouble to learn a little bit of their language. They appreciate it. Many of them speak English now, so there isn't such a need to learn any Greek but they still really appreciate it, and it's very rewarding. Mary Norris, thank you so much for sharing with us a little insight into the value of knowing and understanding Greek language and Greek culture. The book is Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen. Thanks, Mary, and uh, how do you say happy travels in Greek? Kalo taxidi. Well then, kalok taxidi. Kalo. 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 Boy, taxidi. for me. Opa. Opa, that's easy. <laughs> that's easy. Okay, thanks a lot. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Kazmara Hall. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnicone. Special thanks to WGBH Boston and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. You can join us as a caller on the show to talk with Rick and his guests. Find out how at ricksteves.com radio.
At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks for Athens and Greece, Istanbul and Turkey, and a guide to Mediterranean cruise ports. To learn more, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.